ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Monday, the 19th of February. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nippaluna, Hobart. The Federal Cabinet is meeting in Perth today as the Coalition questions how a group of men surprised authorities by making it ashore in a remote part of Western Australia without being detected. The group of 39 was found at Beagle Bay and Pender Bay, north of Broome, and they've been flown to Nauru already. The government says nothing's changed with Operation Sovereign Borders since the program was put in place by the Coalition more than a decade ago to stop asylum seekers coming to Australia by boat. Meanwhile, advocates say the opposition's playing politics with refugees' lives. Here's political reporter Chantel al After seeking asylum on the shores of Western Australia... Are you planning to claim asylum? Yeah, I'm, I'm in there. Because I, I don't want to go back to Pakistan. 39 men have now been flown to Nauru, where they'll stay in Australia's offshore immigration detention facility. A government source has told the ABC that Border Force believes the men arrived on one boat. While he says he won't comment on operational matters, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese says the situation has been resolved. Operation Sovereign Borders is in place. Uh, If you arrive here by boat, you will not be settled here. The coalition has been quick to pounce, with opposition leader Peter Dutton questioning the government's ability to manage national security. I don't know whether the same level of surveillance is being undertaken as was the case when we were in government. Operation Sovereign Borders is a policy of both major parties. Its commander says the operation has not changed since 2013 and that any alternative narrative at a political level would be exploited. We have dealt with these issues appropriately, decisively, clearly and in a way that leaves no doubt. The only person who's out there uh, on a cheer squad is Peter Dutton and he needs to explain how he thinks that the comments that he has made talking Australia down are appropriate. Boat arrivals didn't stop under the former Morrison government and Operation Sovereign Borders has long been veiled in secrecy. The government needs to be honest and frank and open in relation to this issue. Jana Favero from Asylum Seeker Resource Centre says it's misleading for Mr Dutton to say these matters have been treated differently under the Albanese government. I think it's really hypocritical of Peter Dutton to be now demanding greater transparency when it was something that he never, ever gave when he was in power. And she's accused Mr Dutton of using the arrival as another intentional ploy to demonise refugees at a time when forced displacement is at record numbers worldwide. Commentary that takes it away from people fleeing for safety and commentary that is politicised is really commentary that's trying to manipulate public opinion and to divide people. In November last year, 12 asylum seekers who arrived to Western Australia by boat were sent to Nauru, only months after the end of offshore processing on the Pacific nation. Jana Favero says the centre hasn't been able to make contact. We don't know anything about the 15 who were sent there late last year let alone the 40 who have been sent there recently. Unfortunately, there is a lack of information. There is a lack of transparency about the conditions of people once they are transferred offshore. The Prime Minister has flagged an announcement about operational matters is coming soon. Chantelle Alcori reporting. Asylum seeker policy experts argue the recent arrivals in northwestern WA aren't a sign that more boats are coming. Boat skippers who operate from Broome say illegal fishing vessels are often seen in the region. Stephanie Smale reports. 
For boat operators like Harley Cousins, it's common to see illegal fishing boats off the coast of Broome in northwest WA. They'd just be fishing, you know, multiple boats blazingly right in front of you. If they don't get picked up well out, then they're probably going to make it in. Once they get into the islands, you know, up in the Kimberley, you never find them. You, you know, just by sheer good luck, you'd come across them. Australia's asylum seeker policy hasn't changed and unauthorised arrivals are always processed offshore. So why has this boat arrived now? Former Immigration Department Deputy Secretary Abel Rizvi argues at this stage there's no evidence more boats are on their way. I would be very surprised if this is the beginning of a large number of boats. That won't happen. He says Australia's stance is clear and the men who arrived in the far northwest would have known the rules. Given that they know they would end up on Nauru, why would they have tried this? The only thing I can think of is some people smugglers perhaps tricked them into thinking that they would get a different result when we know they won't get a different result. Abel Rizvi argues the experience will put off others who are planning the same. It will be much harder for people smugglers to trick future groups. This is not a cause for alarm. Kaz Coleman was a long-standing independent advisor on asylum seeker policy for both Labor and coalition federal governments. We are very difficult to get to. We are not the same as countries who are landlocked and have people crossing borders in very difficult ways to stop. But we also have a region where people are very desperate to get to somewhere safe. What we should be more concerned about is the countries who are landlocked and our responsibility to support them. Australia and Indonesia are already working together formally to tackle the growing number of asylum seekers in the region. But Andrew Hudson, the CEO of the Centre for Policy Development Think Tank, argues Australia could do more. We just need to not be fixated on just a very small number of boats that are coming to Australia and see it in the context of a much broader um, and more important issue of people on the move in our region. A lot could be done um, at a regional level to intensify policies um, so that everyone's clear on who can do what in terms of responding to these people on the move. That's Andrew Hudson from the Centre for Policy Development, ending that report by Stephanie Smale and Roseanne Maloney. There's been a wave of political arrests in Russia as hundreds of people attend memorials for opposition leader Alexei Navalny. Navalny died at a remote Arctic penal colony on Friday, according to his official spokesperson. It's unclear when the authorities will release Mr Navalny's body. Many world leaders, including the United States President Joe Biden, are blaming Russian President Vladimir Putin for Navalny's death. It's a crushing blow for the country's opposition movement ahead of Russia's presidential election next month. Nicole Johnston has the latest. Russia and the international community is still reeling from the news of the death of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. Mr Navalny's team say he was murdered and have accused officials of deliberately continuing to hold his body. His spokeswoman said they're driving us around in circles and covering their tracks. In Moscow, people laid flowers, paying tribute to Mr Navalny. Speaking to a journalist in the capital, Yelena called him a hero. We're here to honour the memory of a hero. Yes, we consider him a hero because he fought for freedom. Because we believe it is important in the 21st century to live in a democratic country and not in a dictatorship. On Friday, Russia's prison service had announced that Mr Navalny lost consciousness on a walk and couldn't be resuscitated. He'd already spent three years in jail. 
But on Thursday, he had appeared in court, joking and smiling. He did not look on death's door. Brian Whitmore is a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and says there is little doubt who is behind the death. You knew it could happen at any time. Of course, they tried to kill him back in 2020. They poisoned him with Novichuk. Um, if you remember that, and he went to, he had to go to Germany to get treated, and he made a decision, a very fateful decision, to return to Russia. Upon which he was arrested immediately. So they, they tried to kill him one time. So I'm not really surprised they tried again and this time succeeded. Is it possible though that Navalny may have died from the hardship of Russia's prison system? Well, the day before, he was seen on a video in a court appearance and he looked healthy and jovial. So I think it's kind of odd that a, that a man in his late 40s would just suddenly die when he appeared healthy the day before. That said, I don't think it matters. Putin killed Navalny. I think this is something we all just have to keep in mind. Navalny didn't die. Putin killed him. He put him in that prison on trumped up charges after trying to poison him. Putin killed Navalny. And it's just the latest of a, of a series of opponents of Putin who have met the same fate. Why do you think this happened now? I think, well, Russia has uh, something they call elections coming up next month. Russian elections aren't elections in the sense that you have them in Australia and we have them in the U.S. and where they're competitive. Elections in Russia are rituals. And I think they were worried that Navalny was going to spoil the ritual. He was already calling on his supporters to vote for any candidate other than Putin, even though all the candidates are kind of sham candidates. Navalny's kind of, uh, he had pioneered this, uh, this tactic called smart voting. You vote against the ruling party or Putin for anybody, the communist, it doesn't matter. Just vote for somebody else, embarrass the ruling regime. Um, and he has a lot of followers, particularly among young people. The Atlantic Council's Brian Whitmore ending Nicole Johnston's report. As the second anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine approaches, Moscow says it's taken complete control of a city in eastern Ukraine that's been the focus of fierce fighting for months. Ukraine says it withdrew its soldiers from Adivka to save troops from being surrounded. Gavin Coote reports. Under heavy fire, Ukraine has now pulled the last of its troops from Avdivka, a city that's been battered by daily bombardment for the last four months. A frontline city ever since Russia first invaded Ukraine, Avdivka, with its maze of trenches and tunnels, has been heavily fortified in an effort to protect important logistical hubs further west. But significantly outnumbered by Russian soldiers, Ukraine has withdrawn from the city in a decision it said was to avoid encirclement and preserve the lives of servicemen. Igor Konashenkov is a spokesman for Russia's defence ministry. Enemy losses in the battles for Avdivka over the past 24 hours amounted to more than 1,500 military personnel. Currently, measures are being taken to finally clear the city of militants and block the Ukrainian units that have left the city and have settled at the Avdivka Coke and Chemical Plant. The timing is critical, as Russia is looking for a morale boost ahead of the second anniversary of its full-scale invasion of Ukraine and the March presidential election, Russia signalling its strategic significance. The liberation of Avdivka made it possible to move the front line away from Donetsk, thereby significantly protecting it from terrorist attacks by the criminal Kyiv regime. Information about the advance of our troops was not made public until the enemy was completely defeated 
and the city was taken under our control. The troops of the centre group continue offensive operations to further liberate the Donetsk People's Republic from Ukrainian nationalists. It comes as Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky presses the West for more military support. In a speech at the Munich Security Conference, he suggested the withdrawal of Avdivka was partly caused by lack of weapons. Michael Clark is a visiting professor in the Department of War Studies at King's College London and former head of the Royal United Services Institute. He's told RN Breakfast delays in military aid are having a bad effect on Ukrainian morale. You know, if they feel that they're being supported, if they feel that things will get better, more equipment will come in, more help will come in, then they fight quite hard. But if they feel that it's all diminishing, then they start to think about whether they want to risk getting killed in a losing cause. That's the, the sort of effect which what's going on in the outside world has on the troops on the front line. Ukraine's commander-in-chief says his troops are now moving to more favourable lines in the ongoing war. Gavin Coote. In Alice Springs, some of the country's most vulnerable citizens, residents, have no option but to represent themselves in court because of a severe shortage of lawyers. One of the Territory's main agencies that have been providing legal services stopped taking new cases late last year as it battled internal chaos. But those on the front line say this crisis is the result of an Aboriginal legal aid sector being neglected for too long. Charmaine Allison has this report. Sitting at the kitchen table, Frank and Verna Curtis talk about their son. I think he's getting depressed at the way he's talking. I think he's worrying what's going to happen. It's been two months since the 31-year-old was locked up for an alleged domestic violence offence. But like many others in Central Australia, he can't get a lawyer and is having to navigate the NT court system alone. It is utterly a national disgrace that we're in a situation in 2024 in Australia that we have Aboriginal people who are the most vulnerable, disadvantaged people in the country, some of whom don't speak English, who are going to court without legal representation. That's Jared Sharp, the Principal Legal Officer at the North Australian Aboriginal Justice Agency, or NAJA. Last year, the firm stopped taking on new matters in Alice Springs because it had a lawyer shortage. And it was horrific. It was, you know, just crushing workloads all day, every day, trying their best for their clients in impossible circumstances. Naja has long suffered internal turmoil, with its former chief executive Priscilla Atkins bringing an unfair dismissal case before the federal court in October last year. Since Ms Atkins' departure, the agency has had three different acting CEOs and suffered a mass exodus of lawyers. But Clancy Dane, who runs private firm Territory Criminal Lawyers, says this crisis goes beyond Naja and is the consequence of low pay and even lower morale in the Aboriginal legal aid sector as crime and prison numbers continue to rise. All you then need is a little bit of internal instability and you get this self-reinforcing cycle which can bring an organisation to its knees. Due to its current chaos, the Commonwealth has recently amended NAJA's funding arrangement to allow the NT government to redirect the agency's funds to other organisations. But Natalie Hunter, a Nigana woman and one of Naja's founders, argues both governments have consistently neglected the agency. Everybody's having a go at her um, and no one's bothered to come forward to assist. 
Both governments say they're greatly concerned by the situation in Alice Springs and are working together to ensure vulnerable Indigenous Territorians have access to legal services. Naja says it's been working hard to recruit and is aiming to resume youth services by March, followed closely by adult matters, starting with clients who are in custody. For those whose loved ones are caught up in this crisis, change can't come soon enough. The police are just locking them up and there's no lawyers or anything. They're just locking people up and the jail is full. That's Verna Curtis, whose son can't get legal representation. Charmaine Allison reporting there. Two months on from the damaging floods following Cyclone Jasper, some residents in far north Queensland are still living in motels, government-provided caravans or with family. For some, it's been a big disruption to their lives, like those from isolated townships along the Bloomfield River, about four hours' drive north of Cairns. They're in temporary accommodation in Cairns and Cooktown. With homes destroyed, ground destabilised and rivers cutting new courses, some residents are questioning whether it's wise to rebuild. Megan Dancy reports. About five inches through the house was the biggest flood we've ever had. That was a 100-year flood four years ago, and then we've just had this. I mean, this is all just levelled. An old bush cherry tree is about the only thing left standing near the remains of Alec Dunn's childhood home. He calls it the Tree of Life, a reminder of the terrifying night his parents clung to it, floodwaters ripping through their home and the surrounding landscape, and where Alec found them the following day, navigating an old tinny up the flooded Bloomfield River to rescue people. Whirlpools and big giant clouds of water coming up out of everywhere, dodging the power lines and the, and the debris, definitely. They were going into the middle of the river and they were just like skipping about four metres up into the air and landing in the water again. The population of nearby Woodjul Woodjul is still displaced, living in government-provided caravans or other temporary accommodation in Cairns and Cooktown after they were evacuated by the ADF during the disaster. Gugu Yalanji woman and Woodjul Woodjul elder Kathleen Walker says it's been hard on the community. Woodjul is always be a home, but now it's not our home. We're here in Cooktown. With repairs to housing, sewerage and drinking water still underway, there's a long road ahead. The acting CEO of Woodjul Woodjul Aboriginal Shire Council, John Kelly, said it was premature to discuss relocation of homes, but that it was well worth examining. In a statement, the Queensland government said it's working to ensure Woodjul Woodjul residents can return to their homes as soon as possible, and that the location of future social housing and public assets will be considered. At Woodjul Woodjul Falls, surging water has wiped out trees and vegetation. And this is totally different now. There used to be lots of shade, a little rainforest beside the river here and a shady walk to the waterfall. But today, when you come here, it's all... Um, it's all changed. Visiting the waterfall for the first time since the flooding is Woodjul Woodjul resident Lucille Kasser. It's finding the right places to rebuild for people in the whole valley, not even Woodjul, the whole valley. I don't think it's a good idea to build in somewhere where it's just flooded. Residents like Alec Dunn in nearby Dagara are eligible for federal disaster relief grants, but it's up to property owners to decide whether they will return to the same area. Alec Dunn says while his family is still cleaning up, they're unsure about whether they will return. If this is, you know, a part of climate change, this is potentially just going to happen again and again. Dagara resident Alec Dunn ending that report by Megan Dancy. And that is AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. 
Hey, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. Imagine what could happen to the cost of your groceries if the big supermarkets were in a price war to win your business. With Coles and Woolies dominating the market, it's not going to happen. Why? Because they want to keep their profits as high as possible. Today, Four Corners reporter Angus Grigg on his investigation into the tactics of the two big players. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.